It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. My name is Reed Scott. Uh, Thank you. You guys ready for some some hot, hot political discourse? Hello, hello. Thank you, Reed. As a as a Washingtonian, there are um, there are three kinds of Washingtonians. There are the Washingtonians who believe that politics is like the West Wing, where there's idealism and you you know there are noble people tr- accomplishing noble aims. There are people who believe that politics is like House of Cards, which is that everything is conceived of by some Machiavellian person and it's all plotted out. And then there are Washingtonians who believe that everything is like Veep, which is that whatever, it's always incompetence, not, not malevolence. And I think like, what, what it's, an, it's an interesting moment now because it's like it's, a, it's neck and neck between the House of Cards and Veep people. <laughs> about what's actually happening. And the West Wing people are gone. Yeah, the West Wing people. <laughs> don't exist anymore. The West Wing people now all work for Uber or something. <laughs> um, hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 2nd, 2017, the live from the free and independent Republic of California edition. We're, we're on stage at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles in front of a beautiful crowd. Uh, I assume it's beautiful, although it's mostly screenwriters, so not that beautiful. And we're from the East Coast. We're from the East Coast, so they all look like Emma Stone yeah, the, to me. The audience is all tan and healthy, and I don't think we can play the attractiveness card on them. We come from the East Coast. <laughs> so I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my left, of course, is John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation on CBS. And to John's left, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. On this week's GabFest, Donald Trump gave a big speech on Tuesday night. Did it reset the presidency? Is everything going to be normal now? <laughs> then, Trump and the law will savor Emily's monumental new piece in the Times Magazine about how Trump and his Attorney General Jeff Sessions may upend federal law in all kinds of disturbing ways. Then, here, 3,000 miles away from the nation's capital, there's a simmering rebellion. How can the Western states resist Trumpism? And we will even consider your bedroom fantasy, what would actually happen if California becomes an independent nation? (laughs) Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and for Slate Plus, we'll do audience Q&A. There'll be microphones up at the front. Get ready for that. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash gabfestplus to join. And this will sound weird because you guys are on Los Angeles, but if you're listening not in Los Angeles right now, on Wednesday, May 10th, we'll have a live show at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. for Trump's 100 Days, 100 Days of the Administration. Go to slate.com slash live for more information. You all can come to that show, too, though. Don't, think, don't make them big. You can. Yes, definitely. 
the President of the United States read a long and mediocre speech off a teleprompter <laughs> to Congress on Tuesday night. Like every other presidential address to Congress of the past 25 years, it was extremely dull. It had a series of patriotic banalities punctuated by showy standing ovations, and it was peppered with cameos uh, where we drew attention to American heroes or American victims. The fact that it was this president who managed to read all the way through the speech has been greeted as almost a miracle. <laughs> In one of the finest examples of what President George W. Bush used to call the soft bigotry of low expectations, Trump is being credited with being presidential with resetting his presidency, with showing that he is ready to lead. John. Why'd you go to Emily? Emily. As politics, was this an effective speech? Well, it was more effective than other speeches he's given. I mean, I do think there is something, um, I was going to say masterful, but that suggests that I'm certain there's deliberation and planning behind it. So let's just go with effective. There is something effective about shaking expectations up to such a degree that when you just do a kind of, you know, B minus version of a standard speech, that is a huge relief to a lot of people. And I think that there are enough. So there's the base. I, it wasn't a speech for the base, but it had enough for the base in it. The base wasn't going to move away from him because of this speech. And I think for the people who want to feel reassured, who don't want to give up on this brand new president, it probably did come as um, as something of a bonus and a plus. On the other hand, I just don't know how much that matters in the longer run. The substance of the speech was very much in line on immigration, on crime, mostly on healthcare, with what we should be expecting. And it had almost no policy details in it. So the idea that we were going to get some kind of real template for actual legislation, uh, that did not happen. John, why was the pundit response so enthusiastic to it? You're going to make me answer for the pundits. So you, I, you can uh, answer a different question I didn't ask. Yeah, that's just true. like guests that's on Faith the Nation right, do. Exactly. Yeah. So what you're saying is you're going to ask me a question and then I can give you any answer I want. Exactly. But then David's going to doggedly stick right. to it. Not really. No, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't so, have that in me. Yeah. There's a part of this. There are certain set pieces of the presidency, and for a president and a candidate who basically broke the mold on all the things, it is notable that he performed in the set piece the way you're supposed to perform. It was long, it was boring, it was a laundry list. It, it, it um, effectively used people in the crowd. It was the America First agenda in a more conventional package. Instead of talking about the carnage of America, he talked about how he was going to deliver America from that carnage. That may seem like a small uh, point, and, but rhetorically it had... When when he was giving his when preparing for his first inaugural address, you talked to some first people. First inaugural, please may it be the only. Uh, um, and also his convention speech, various people would com say, "Well, compare him to Nixon in '68." Uh, and Nixon in his speeches would have the dark and then the light. He talked. Nixon talked about the lift of a driving dream. You know, he tried to do uh, sort of say, yes, America is in uh, desperate straits, but, you know, we will rise to a new day. And, and President Trump obviously didn't do that in the inaugural address at all. And this was his attempt to kind of do the other half of, of that. But 
if this speech was a unity speech, as it was billed as uh, by the White House, there was nothing in the speech. <laughs> is if he was really trying to be unifying, you would offer either A, some sign that you've been listening to the other side, you would offer some policy prescription that the other side wants. You would offer some uh, nod symbolically to the other side or the leaders of the other side or an idea from the other side or your predecessor from the other side or anything like that. He and Bernie Sanders see things more uh, are more aligned on on prescription drug prices than he and Mitch McConnell are. So you could imagine, I mean, there were places that were right there ready for him to use if, in fact, the stated goal of the White House was what they were trying to do, and they didn't, and they didn't do it. Well, but the policies themselves were, were perhaps bipartisan. I mean, infrastructure is something, prescription drug pricing is something that Democrats want to do. The, the paid child care is... Right, right but they but were paid all framed in terms of his accomplishments without any kind of gesture toward these are democratic or progressive right. ideas. And also, if you're, cu- if you're cutting $54 billion out of non-defense discretionary, which represents only 15% of the budget, and you're doing it in one year, you can say the word family leave, but everybody in the audience who you're is not already with you is thinking about all the things that are going to get cut from non-defense discretionary and your family leave paragraph is not going to settle, you know, make them feel better. And that was true of many things. You know, um, when he talked about immigration to the extent he did it all, um, you know, then when you set up, um, then when you point to the, uh, to the gallery and have people there who've been the, the victims of crimes uh, from undocumented immigrants, um, you're sending a stronger message symbolically than anything you may say about policy or not say about policy. Well, and also what he did say about immigration policy is in line with his hardline stances and not with whatever weird thing he dangled out earlier in the day when he was talking to TV anchors and he made some gesture toward a, a big compromise bill. That was either a momentary just like sneeze or... Um, or it was deliberately there to mislead. I'm and trying to catch up with your mo- metaphor about the big thing he dangled out that was momentarily a sneeze. <laughs> I didn't do a very good job with my metaphor. Oh well. Anyway, that was just so you're talking about he. Yeah. So the there was this suggestion on the afternoon of the speech that the president was going to support at uh, and maybe even say in the speech a support a legal status for undocumented immigrants, which would say you could have a job, you would pay taxes, you wouldn't have to be you wouldn't have to worry about being uh, deported. That was a that was a switch from the speech he gave in September when he said even legal status you'd have to go back to your home country first. So this was a this was a uh, an idea that was floated in the afternoon, but then never was was said in the speech. Right, and it seemed like of course it wouldn't follow through because the people in power in the administration, Steve Bannon and Jeff Sessions, are mortally opposed to any kind of comprehensive immigration reform. That was like a throwback to 2013 or 14. So then you have these um, actual sentences about immigration that are also about potentially limiting the number of legal immigrants. I mean, that's really the subtext of this idea of changing how we give out visas for high-skilled workers. And, and, and to me, the most outrageous piece of this was the, on the immigration piece, was his victims of immigration crime enforcement or something, yeah. which is the government is now going to publish a list of crimes by immigrants every week, which is literally something the Nazis did. That is, the, you know, I'm, I don't like Nazi comparison. That is literally something the Nazis did, publish lists of crimes by Jews. And to do this around immigrants, and I don't even think it's undocumented immigrants. I think it's immigrants. Well, they, I think it's, it's non-citizens. You're quite right. It, it's just immigrants, not undocumented, in the, in, at least in the naming. And just to 
play that out one more beat. I mean, immigrants actually commit fewer violent crimes than native-born Americans, but when you call attention, right? But when you call attention to this particular category of crimes, you're creating an engine of coverage for it. And this is what Breitbart did and does. I mean, these crimes are the kind of meat and potatoes and mostly red meat of Breitbart coverage all the time. So it's as if you're taking kind of Breitbart's view of criminality and crime and bringing it inside the federal government. As far as if you look at this from the Republican perspective in Congress, they have been worried since the well, since uh, President Trump won the election that uh, he would be unpredictable and, and unable to and and fight against the constraints of the office. He showed that in this speech to them that um, that he can do the he can do the thing, go into the well of the House, give, deliver the speech. Um, make it look like a normal speech. Uh, there were so many applause lines for them to to rally around. Uh, and so for nervous Republicans who who worry about his ability to do those those things at a time when the, the, the administration is changing from executive orders, which are the sort of easy things he can do, to the selling business of selling the replacement for the Affordable Care Act, tax reform, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, size of relief that... Um, that he could do this part for rallying them for the things they want to do. But did they really get what they needed? I mean, weren't they asking for actual guidance on, I mean, they got tax credit, but then there was this whole debate. Well, he didn't say refundable tax credit. I'm talking about the Obamacare part. There were a few specifics, right? We're still at the like, oh, here are your puppies and flowers and your magic carpet ride. It's all going to be great. I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to get there. You went to the metaphor store before you got here, didn't you? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Puppies and flowers on a magic carpet. Um, well, my, so, my so favorite. What he did, well, so, oh, wait, wait, so, hold on. That's a good. John got so distracted by the answer. Um, I literally have forgotten the question. Well, no, no. So on Obamacare, so he laid out his five principles for what no, an Obamacare I, replacement needs to do, and I, and they, I thought they were they were not unspecific. They were they had a little bit more specificity. They're than the anything same things been. they've been saying for years, though. Flexibility, cross state lines, um, which won't tax really credit, have a big impact. Keep well, Medicaid. No, but the tax credit part was he, actually weighing in was, on a fight. Right. That was the most significant. That was the news, right? Right. I guess your point, though, is the right one, which is, did they get, um, did Republicans get what they needed? I, on the one hand, they did. They got some assurance, the, the compulsory, he can role. play this part, which is not, which is not unimportant. But if you are a member and you are back at one of these town halls, what's the line that he gave you? Uh, that you can now use to explain why the Affordable Care Act is better. I mean, he didn't do some great riff about the private, you know, about basically having more competition um, and how that'll lower costs. Or he didn't give, I mean, his talent in life is as a marketer. And what they would love on the Republican side is some marketing line for why doing these various big, complicated things they're going to do, some big, some version of Make America Great Again for replacing the Affordable Care Act or Make America Great Again for tax reform. That's what he could deliver them that I don't think there was in that speech, but they're willing to take the first part, which was, you know, that, that they got lots of applause lines and the base of the Republican Party feels good about that. They got generally good reviews for the speech. So I think they'll take that, even though they didn't maybe get that Rating second piece. on a curve. Just last, last question on this. The Democrats trotted out some former governor I'd never heard of to give their rebuttal. Oh, come on. Bashir, Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, maybe his first name is Steve. Steve. His remember. name is, yeah. Okay. How many people had heard of him? KY Connect. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really weak response, a really weak 
reply. But you talk about grading on a curve. Who remembers except for the total disaster? Yeah, why did it matter? Why were it doesn't you, matter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't. I also don't even think Trump speech matter. These all things all get forgotten. Nobody remembers anything that Obama or. George W. Bush or or Bill Clinton never said in one of these. I remember speeches. every word that was written yeah. of Obama's. Um, it's the fact that here is the the first big moment of the Trump presidency where Democrats get a get a prime time spot to rebut him, and they they trot out somebody nobody's ever heard of. It suggests there's a a very weak bench there in the Democratic Party. Or a hesitancy to play that role because right. often that ends up backfiring. The person who gives that rebuttal does him or herself a disservice in the moment. <laughs> and then you've sort of, someone becomes the butt of jokes who had a promising future like Bobby Jindal. And then they're sort of tarnished, right? So I don't know. Maybe that's why Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, your new senator, Dylan uh, Brand. Warren, I mean, and Bernie Sanders did do his own thing on Facebook. I don't know why that wasn't on TV, but I just hope they let live. I just hope they let those poor people out of that diner. Yeah, Um, seriously. You know, one other thing we should mention, which is not unimportant, is that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in the country who are nervous about the president and who, at least based on our polling. (laughs) Really? None of them are in the audience. (laughs) We're on the stage. Uh, Who are. John Dickerson it's going to be hard bringing the hard truth. It's going to be hard. It's really hard to get to the end of a damn sentence. Uh, there, let's try this again. I'll do it faster. There are a lot of people in the country who are nervous about the president, but who still like him. Who want to so, like him? Too. So we, uh, you know, so in in you know, if you split the electorate into four, you have the people who love him no matter what. You have the people who like him and are with him, but are could leave him. You have the people who are sort of curious about him, but aren't yet with him. And then you have the resistors. Those people, the people who are with him, but are nervous and might leave him and are, you know, for those people that being able to just do the basic speech is actually quite And it reassuring. was the first time he'd given a big speech he, where it seemed like that was the main audience rather than like, maybe you might join as right. They didn't seem to be incidental to the way the speech was crafted, yeah. even though the substance was the same. I mean, I should say just to just I I would take. I, I mean, I obviously think that, that the policies that Trump is pursuing is are are wrong and terrible, and I think he he is incredibly dangerous. But I would take a normal bad conservative presidency at this point. I would happily take it. And if but and, don't you want the presidency, not just the appearance yeah. of the presidency? Isn't that in some ways the worst of both worlds? That it continues to be abnormal, but it looks more normal? Right. No, you're right. You're right. That's true. Right. So he can he gives the he gives the normal speech. He gives a normal speech but continues to like deal with the Russians and, you know, take violate the emolument clause sixteen ways to Sunday. Yeah, no, that that part is troubling. But I, I guess I as I was listening to Trump and I was think I was thinking, you know, if I could just have Mike Pence as president, I would accept it. I would ha- I would accept it. I would it would be okay. Because I because I think you're that, craving normality. Well, because it because I think the there is something very valuable in just maintaining the kind of continuity of institutions and maintaining the sort of the normal ways we do things, even though the policies are abhorrent that just maintaining those institutions and customs is in itself. I mean, I'm a small C conservative person and I think that those things are valuable and it really worries me that Trump 
has blown through so many of them. I mean, it was not a coincidence or it was striking that, you know, the Trump sons were off making a business deal with this like sketchy Malaysian guy to open a new hotel, right? That same night. So the the conflicts of interest, the the scurrilous Mishugas is all still there. Sorry. <laughs> I'm really Scurl. That I'm is not, the, there we go. Scurlous Mishigas. That's my rhetorical. That's like right that's now. the end of that section. <laughs> yeah. Scurlous Mishigas. All right. This episode of the Gabfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We appear to be on the cusp of huge changes in how the Justice Department and its sister agencies enforce federal law. Under, under Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who had been the most conservative U.S. senator and the most anti-immigration U.S. senator, the Trump Justice Department is moving rapidly to change the priorities that have guided law enforcement and lawyers for the past eight years. This is not really surprising. Every president puts his own stamp on the Department of Justice. Um, Emily has a magisterial piece on the cover of the New York Times Magazine this weekend. And we're going to talk about that and use it as a discussion for uh, Trump and the law. But Emily, let me just start with the basic question. Trump was elected president. His attorney general was approved by the Senate. There's a huge latitude for the president to uh, and his attorney general to change the priorities of law enforcement. What's the big deal? Right. No, I think that is the right place to start. And one of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was working on this piece was how much continuity is there? Does it seem like there will be between the Sessions Justice Department and George W. Bush's Justice Department, which had problems and ended up in a big scandal over conflict of interest issues that um, toppled Alberto Gonzalez. And then you can also go back to Reagan, which is the period in which the Justice Department really was the seat of a kind of foundation of the conservative legal movement. John Roberts was there, Ken Starr, um, some slightly less famous but really important conservative lawyers, Chuck Cooper, who did your Prop 8 trial um, for the uh, anti-gay marriage folks. So there is a fair amount of continuity, and the conservatives I spent a lot of time talking to desperately want for it to all be continuity and are telling themselves that story. But I telling think... Telling themselves a story that, that the 
Trump Department of Justice will be basically like the George W. Bush. Yeah, like of Justice. we're sending me when Sessions confirmation hearings were going on and he was being attacked for his history in the 80s. And although in the end, the Democrats really didn't attack him that much, but they were braced for that. And so I was getting emails from people from the Bush and Reagan Justice Department saying, what's what are the Democrats complaining about? Sessions is like any other Republican choice for attorney general would be. So. I don't think that's true for two reasons. One is that I spent a lot of time listening to Breitbart Radio for this story. And Steve Bannon started this radio show in 2015 and had sessions on, I think, 18 times um, over the like year and a half or two that followed. And Sessions is normally someone who speaks in very soft, modulated tones with a lot of Southern charm. But on Breitbart Radio, some of the kind of sharper sides come out and you start hearing, I think, a tremendous degree of accord between his views and Bannon's around the question of what the country should be and whether they should be fighting very hard against the changing demographic picture of America, which means a fight against pluralism, against diversity. I mean, immigration is like the sanitized way to say what they're really against. And that is um, certainly within the president's power to pick someone who has those attributes, but it suggests that the person in control of the Justice Department has a real ideological agenda. And maybe other, you know, you can say Ed Meese, Reagan's attorney general, had one too. But it's still striking and means that the country is going to change. The second part of this is about Sessions' independence and whether he is sufficiently independent from Trump to perform the institutional role we need from the attorney general in the event where we're worried that there's wrongdoing on the part of the president. And that, I think, is being seriously tested. There was more news about that today that we can talk about. So can I can I jump? Um, so is it that Sessions is departing from the traditional ideological view of Republican attorneys general, or he's adding to it. I mean, in other words, his view of the civil rights division is probably pretty close to the Reagan Bush view. Yes, in a lot of ways. I think he's adding to it, although there are some changes. And I should also say, you know, Eric Holder brought in an ideological agenda, too. He was in favor to some degree of criminal justice reform. And his civil rights division under both Tom Perez and Vanita Gupta did a lot of sweeping liberal things that conservatives didn't like. But so let's take one example of where I think you can argue that it's adding to or you can say it's different. And we don't really know yet, but let's talk about policing. So the Justice Department has had the power to investigate and, and require reforms of police departments since 1994. It's a Clinton-era statute. It came after the beating of Rodney King here. And L.A. was one of the first police departments to be investigated. Clinton does, the Clinton folks do 25 investigations. The um, Obama people do 25. The Bush folks did 21. Now they were smaller and they weren't as comprehensive and they didn't have the same kind of conclusions about race discrimination, generally speaking. But they were present. So then, as my piece is going online, essentially Sessions is saying, you know what, we're pulling back from this. We're not really sure. And, and he has been very skeptical of the kind of agreement, a consent decree that you reach as the government with an institution if you really want it to change, because that's where court monitoring comes in. He has said that he thinks that consent decrees are dangerous. So is that adding on or is that actually different in kind? I don't think we quite know yet, but it's an open question. One of the things that alarms me, Emily, is that that the Bannon, Sessions, and Trump uh, 
uh, legal policy seems to be guided by a completely erroneous, factually incorrect view of what's happening in American cities and in particularly around crime, that there's this notion that Trump, I mean, Trump obviously used that phrase American carnage. Um, but in general, they talk about how dangerous cities are, how the, the terrible crime, the, the threat. Trump talks about Chicago all the time when in fact, you know, cities have not been, you know, or safe as they've been in, in the last 50 years. Crime, except for a bump in the last year, has basically gone down. And there's this total willful misreading of the data. And I think it, it's because it serves them politically. Um, and so why? Like, why, what, why? Yeah, I mean, is it just is it just because it serves them politically or is it because is it because they actually do believe inner city neighborhoods are, are you know, under siege? Well, Republicans win the presidency when they make law and order a real important theme that they are hitting over and over again. McCain and Romney didn't do that and they lost. So there's certainly political gain here. And I but think why does it work? Because well, they, we have law. We have order. There's basically right. order. But people. Well, I mean, there's not. I mean, Chicago, you know, is not. A, there is a city. Right. But Chicago is not the whole country. It's I understand. Really just but I mean, it's not Chicago like it's a compl- too. We should. Right. That, like yeah. the violence in Chicago is actually very specifically located in parts of mostly um, poor African-American Chicago. It's not actually threatening white middle class voters. But I think the perception that the country is in disarray and chaos and is threatened is very, very useful for this agenda that Sessions and Bannon have and that Trump has bought into, right? It's true about the way they frame voting, right? When you say that 14% of the country, uh, 14% of non-citizens are voting illegally, again, you're creating a lot of reason to be afraid and to think that we need really drastic measures on the part of law enforcement to crack down. And so if that's your goal, I think that you can see why that rhetoric comes in again and again. And for Trump, who likes sometimes to think of himself in this, like, I will save you strongman role. It's like, you know, very attractive. Should we talk about Russia? Yeah. <laughs> there's just a, there's a kind of astonishing story that you guys probably haven't even seen yet that's breaking today. Although they all have because they all have phones. Oh. Well, tell so us. So there are two developments. There's the, the Times has a story about, they basically said before they left, Obama administration officials basically tried to put on the record as much as they could about uh, collusion between the Russians meddling in the election and uh, or the suggestion of collusion or the hints of connections between Russians trying to meddle in the election and uh, the Trump campaign and basically um, tried to to basically look through as much data, write reports, keep the classification low on the reports, and then spread them as far as they could throughout the administration so that they could, if nothing else, create a permanent record, but also create a record that the investigative committees on the Hill could use, uh, that perhaps journalists could get access to through um, – through their sources, and that's obviously been a part of what's leaked out over the over the last few weeks. In the Times story, what interested me was that the um, TikTok of the conversations between Michael Flynn, the former National Security Advisor, uh, and the Russian ambassador was tighter, it felt like, than I'd read in other accounts, which is basically the other accounts had hinted at the idea that he made these calls to to discuss sanctions the Obama administration was putting on the Russians. 
and basically said to them, it sort of hinted that he said, look, just cool your jets when when President Trump is in office, we won't we'll either turn off the sanctions or we'll we'll fix this. The Times had it just much more. They had a timeline. It seems like they had it nailed down more. The previous stories had kind of suggested at this these sets of conversations and they and then the post ran a story that said that Jeff Sessions as a senator met with the Russian ambassador in June and September. But when he was questioned by Al Franken during his confirmation hearings about whether he'd any had any contact with the Russians, he said no. So, uh, and he acknowledged when Franken asked the question that people had talked about him as a surrogate of the campaign, which was fair enough. He helped craft Trump's immigration policy in August 2016. And the reason that's important is that he offered in the, his response to the question validation under of oath. The, question under oath right. under validation oath. of the idea that he was connected to the campaign, because often when you ask these questions of somebody who wasn't, you know, didn't have like an ID badge at Trump headquarters, they could say, well, I wasn't I wasn't really with the campaign. I mean, I was a surrogate, but so this is a problem, obviously, various people have suggested that he should recuse himself even in Republican circles. Now this adds this extra piece, and he's not the only one who's who had uh, issues with his confirmation. Right. I mean, as John, you were saying when we were talking before the show that that the EPA administrator apparently lied under oath to the Senate when he when he talked about contacts with energy companies about he said he hadn't used a private email uh, account Never. to do business. We had used a private email account. That sounds familiar. I don't know where I heard that one before. Um, the secretary of HHS, Tom Price, appears to have misled Congress about some things. Stock about options. stock, stock options. Stock, yeah. About yes. whether they were preferred. He um, said they weren't. And now Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, who is the, the person who is who's, you know, my word is the law is appears to have misled Congress and perhaps lied to Congress uh, willfully about something which he is now investigating. So Emily, like, is there, there has been this, this uh, sort of Republicans in Congress have sort of pursued this. I just don't notice anything kind of thing. They just like, just, I just don't see it. Are they going to continue not to see it? Well, maybe John thinks that's a little. Un- I mean, that's, I yeah, think this I mean, is they, fundamental. Some of them have expressed concerns about this, right? I mean, Daryl Issa said that uh, that Sessions should appoint a special counsel. We're not using the phrase special prosecutor anymore because the independent um, count- independent prosecutor statute lapsed. But Sessions absolutely has the power to appoint a special counsel and essentially perform that same role—an independent um, law enforcement investigation that um, that is not subject to his direct oversight in the Justice Department. I mean, I I just, <laughs> it's so crucial to the country that we have these separate channels of authority and that when you have suspected wrongdoing inside the administration by the president or his team, that we can be confident that there's an independent investigation going on. When you compare these phone calls with the Russian ambassador to Loretta Lynch's talking in a social way with Bill Clinton over the airport tarmac last summer, they, you know, if you see appearance of impropriety in Lynch's contacts with Clinton, I just don't see how you can't be equally, if not more troubled by this. And then, and that is even separate from this question of lying under oath or misleading under oath, which for the attorney general is again, I mean, this is why Alberto Gonzalez had to step down in 2007. And, and we, yeah. we come to this issue, this issue, which is, which Ezra Klein wrote a great piece about, which is the problem is not that we have a rogue administration, although that is a problem where people are willing to lie. It's that we have a Congress that is unwilling to 
wow. carry out its Article One responsibility to investigate and hold responsible and hold and and hold to account this administration. Well, that's the problem. Actually, the problem is different. The uh, so the investigations okay. are Probably. the investigations are taking the you know they are taking in the place, Senate but intelligence committee, in the Senate right? Intelligence that's and the House Intelligence Committee. But the it seems to me the closer analogy to the Loretta Lynch meeting is when you had the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee and the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee at the request of the White House, knocking back stories about an ongoing investigation that they're also investigating. That's where you have they're they are supposed to be investigating the administration. And knocking back a story seems to me to be that's you you can't be knocking back a story for right, the White so House. Everybody that you're seems or many p- actors in this story seem implicated in a way that if they were really performing their roles as public servants, they wouldn't be. And that is I'm right. Like, what? Uh, yeah. Jeff Sessions is a member of the Armed Services Committee, would have had reason to meet with the Russian ambassador. And apparently There's there not, were other ambassadors who he was talking right, so to you during can, that time. What's true is that he said he didn't. He, he said under oath that he didn't meet with the Russians. He but could it's have not, had a legitimate. He could have had a legitimate reason. To be reason to and uh, he seems to say that he doesn't think it was relevant. But from the way that the Times worded Al Franken's question, it was a broad question. You know, in the course of the campaign, not about the campaign. Emily, just very quickly, I, just to go back to your story, the areas where Sessions may pursue policies that seem radically different: mar- uh, marijuana policy, immigration policy, uh, private, bringing back private prisons, voting rights laws. The, the transgender student bathroom yeah. access order has been rescinded, right? Investigating com- uh, police departments. Yeah. Investigating police cops. departments, yeah. All right, let's, we can leave that there with some booze. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. If the yes, California organizers can round up. 585,407 signatures. Californians will have an opportunity to vote in 2018 on a ballot initiative that would push for your state to secede from the United States. If it, if this divided audience, if this initial ballot initiative passes, you would vote in 2019 on this question. The question is, should California become a free, sovereign, and independent country? Even if you vote for that, it is going to be a preposterously difficult road for you to become an independent country. Uh, it would require a constitutional amendment. Three-quarters of states would have to approve it, as well as Congress. And if you remember the Civil War, <laughs> secession has an even worse record than the Clippers do historically. <laughs> but we are going to re- indulge, we're going to indulge this fantasy briefly, and we're going to talk about the very real anger and resentment behind it that some of you may feel, the Western resentment of Trumpism and the resistance to Trumpism in the Republican Congress. So, John, when Rick Perry talked in the early Obama administration about Texas seceding, he joked about it even. He just took a whack from people who said that was outrageous for him to talk about secession of Texas. Why shouldn't all these Californians who just cheered feel ashamed of themselves (laughs) on the same grounds? I seek not to shame. They can, 
I mean, people can have uh, their their ideas and go about wise. I mean, seems perfectly fine for them to uh, try and do this. Californians can try it. Texans can try it. In Minnesota, they can they can leave. Actually, you think it's a legitimate policy? You think it's a legitimate thing for for a state to try to pursue? Sure. Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think it's a legitimate thing for them to succeed. But you think it's a totally legit? It's but not like, like a- you're just humoring them in a sort of like, oh, ha ha ha! You'll never do this. We have no, the no. I think it's good for states to constantly be fighting against the federal government to keep the balance between what the st- whether it's Texas or California. Right, but even to this level, even to pursue this well, fantasy, which cannot, which cannot become true. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe so it why can cannot? Why do you feel like that's a bedrock assumption? Why can't it become true? Well, I mean, the Civil War was evidence that this is this can't happen sort of by fiat. The con- the state cannot will it into being, so it has to require it has con- a the constitution, bloody, a constitutional history. convention, essentially, to do it. But you're, I guess it's not illegal. But maybe isn't it? I thought under Supreme Court, actually, isn't it illegal? Isn't it really not something that a state is allowed to do? Is to it even, even clear pass this that referendum? a state can? That a state, not to pass a referendum, oh. but to secede. It's not even clear that a state can secede. Well, I think if there was a constitutional convention and the the all the mechanisms were, went, the vote happened, I think then it would be legal. The Constitution does provide for that. We just assume that that would never happen. Why, why Emily, and we should be asking you guys this, but why, Emily, do Californians... I lived here once. Why, Californians, why do Californians such as you used to be feel justified... In, in considering this? What is it that makes them think we ought to be our own country? Oh, yes. You really should be asking the audience this. So to channel the audience, maybe for a minute, um, you know, first of all, I think there's the sense of what does Trump's election, if, if it seems like this moment in time generated this energy, what does Trump's election mean about the direction of the country? And why shouldn't one of the wealthiest states that puts in far more tax contribution that it takes out why should it be paying not just like for medicaid in louisiana but for you know a 10 percent increase in the defense department given to a president that the state doesn't support given all of its um industry and and entrepreneurial spirit it, it could be a country on its own i mean it has in that sense it's realistic in a way that texas wasn't and so i can see why, Wait, why that not? would seem why isn't texas why wasn't realistic because well, texas it- doesn't have i mean maybe i'm wrong about this but texas it would seem to me like california has um is a bigger economy has more right i don't think like, it's that much bigger no okay so it's, a, yeah, it's definitely a bigger economy but texas, but not, texas, but texas can make is a still pretty case. damn big too yeah, yeah it's not like nebraska nebraska would have a hard time right well the being in the be middle like right Lesotho i guess the borders well and also you could imagine california partnering with washington and oregon i mean if this was really gonna happen yeah. like well uh, and there's the same argument that texas made which is you know and also don't tell us what to do right absolutely right but it, what would the national anthem be would it be <laughs> california girls california dreaming, california dreaming or hotel california Definitely not Hotel California. We'll do, we'll do a little audience vote. Will it be Hotel California? Oh, my God. Will it be California Dreaming? Will it be California Girls? Totally inconclusive. No, it's no, California Dreaming. dreaming. It's California Dreaming, it. obviously. By the way, Nancy Pelosi has now called for Sessions to uh, resign. 
Resign. Wow. And and since she has done so, it's certain that he will not. (laughs) Um, So wouldn't um, Nancy Pelosi, who could be the first president of the free republic, the bear republic. Would everybody love that? Or stayed for that. Jerry Brown could get the presidency he's been longing for since 1980. Um, Wouldn't, but a California republic would be a disaster for the rest of the country, wouldn't it, Emily? Right. Well, I think the rest of the country feels. I mean, yes, many people, especially from other, especially from other blue states, feel like we could never afford to lose California. And if if you see this election, or if you want it to be an aberration, and you want to imagine that. It is a kind of uh, a last gasp of resistance against how the country is changing in a way that will make the country more like California. Um, then you really want California to hang in there and stick tight with the rest of us because um, we need y'all. So, John, what what is it that just indulge me and assume that California is going to remain a state in the union? What what is it that California can do to make the rest of America more like California or what, what well, can they, they can't do, to- do that? They can, I don't know that they can do that. They can, they can do things to be Disagree. a bulwark against a bulwark against what they, the overreach well, what- by the federal government, which is what Texas tried to do, you know, pass laws that I don't know what the particular clashes would be. I guess you would imagine they would well, be on immigration, immigration and they would be on, on healthcare. Um, the problem is that the, the things they would do to um, push back against or replace the, removal of federal programs are all going to be expensive but well i think there's another way and and i think we've already seen it california california's done this which is like because california is such a large market there's certain things where you can impose regulations and laws in california which then effectively compel companies to do car car, like higher emission standards or uh, another example i thought of is if if california strengthened unions in california it gives it it doesn't have any effect on other states, but what it does is it gives unions more money and more sort of political power to then to that because the California unions are stronger, there's more money they can they can organize more effectively. In but other do the states, companies perhaps. that work in California want their want lots of strong unions? I, I mean, more than companies that are in South Carolina do. Well, probably. the political the the picture is different here. The companies who don't want that don't want unions have less power than they do in some other states, right? The other thing I think is going to be really interesting to watch is sanctuary cities and a sanctuary state. So, you know, how much this is where again Jeff Sessions matters a great deal to the conversation. How much does the Justice Department? And the Department of Homeland Security well, push back against states that are resisting. Um, and is well, there to, what? Sorry. No, sorry. But they have sorry. to be allowed to push back, right? Don't they have to have a determination about whether they can not give them the money and well, how much money not to give? Right. Them? I mean, it, we'll see how aggressive the Trump administration actually is about withholding funds. But right now, there's an executive order directing. Um, Justice Department and Department of Homeland Security to figure out what they could legally withhold. And presumably all of this is going to be litigated. It's all going to go to court. I think that the argument for withholding funds in education and housing that are not related to law enforcement is a weak argument, but we just don't know how that's going to play out. And is there, I, uh, my, I mean, this is not quite as, um, 
you know, far removed as a secession argument, but is in the seeds of this, is there the idea of not paying taxes to a federal government that is taking the money and doing things with it that you really, right? Like that's, I've been wondering about that because other states and cities are going to start thinking about that too if their budgets right. really face cuts. Right. And, and what I wonder is if, if Californians start not paying taxes, the IRS is going to be gutted, presumably, and so the Trump administration doesn't care about tax enforcement but, but well, they stop, might care about it if Californians stop paying taxes. But if you stop paying taxes, then the questions that the that the Justice Department has to adjudicate about how to punish, I mean, then you can just punish, then you can just withdraw all federal funding. Maybe. I mean, it would be, you'd have different lawsuits and different kinds of legal action going on on different fronts. I mean, you'd have one set of questions about what the federal government can withhold, and then you'd have questions about prosecuting people who weren't paying their taxes. And we have not, and I, I don't mean to raise this as thinking this is a good idea. It's really dangerous, as Greece knows, to go down the slope of people no longer paying their taxes, right? The IRS doesn't, we know, they only audit a tiny fraction of people. We need people to pay their taxes. And yet I feel like there's a way in which, and we're not there yet, but if the federal government really started pushing, they would be inviting that kind of resistance. I have one, my one, my one other fantastical idea is that California, if you're really committed, you should make a concerted effort to invite people from red states to come live here. It should be like the Dust Bowl where you're getting lots of Okies. That what the California's problem is that it's too liberal and too blue and it should take away some of the redness from other states and absorb it here if that's what you're if that's what you want Plur they're bathed Plur in a blue light even Plur from where i'm sitting Plur pluralism only goes so far <laughs> well, but that's i mean don't you think that's at the, we keep wrestling with this question of the polarization and the divide right now and how willing people are to try to reach across it or how hopeless they feel about doing that and the secession move has the sense of withdrawal and hopelessness about it which so activism instead. So organizing, so. Although, being part so. of it. Yeah. 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 But I think, I, but, I, but I guess the, the withdrawal function, you, you want you try to do it, you find out you can't, and then you return your focus to try to fix it in the other channels, which keeps people like, which keeps them ultimately engaged. So, uh, which ultimately is what happened in Texas, right? So they didn't secede. And now the former governor is the secretary of energy. So <laughs> things turned out okay for him. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you when you're uh, at your cabin in the independent nation of California. You're wondering how to sneak back across the border. <laughs> what will you be chattering about, Emily? So there are now 18 states that have introduced or are considering bills that essentially go after protesting, try to limit people's ability to protest on the streets um, wherever, and also to try to scare them out of doing it. And most of the bills are things like making it, increasing the punishments to block the highway. That's like a popular one, especially um, in North Dakota for obvious reasons. Um, and there are other ones that are kind of more along those lines. But Arizona has a bill right now where if you plan a protest, 
If you plan a protest, you could theoretically be prosecuted under RICO, the um, the anti-racketeering statute, yes. And even if you don't personally commit an act of violence, if violence came out of some planning going on at your house, in theory, they could take your house away. They could repossess it as in a kind of civil or criminal forfeiture um, mode. It's a bill. It's not yet law. Presumably it won't become law. But this is really, really extreme. This idea that we are going to be so um, angry with and worried about protesting that we are going to go to this kind of measure to warn people against doing it. And I mean, I have to say the last time we saw bills like this was in the anti-civil rights South, in which there were attempts at legislation to make it illegal to form civil rights groups, to do sit-ins, to march. Um, The idea that we are back to that level of dismay about and resistance to protesting. I mean, I guess it's just part of this polarization picture, but that particular piece of legislation seems um, deeply, deeply not a good idea. So don't pass that bill, Arizona. John, what is your chatter? So uh, my chatter is, um, is about a, it's a, a sorting technique for uh, classifying people. So the two things, one, uh, what do you, what do, I want to see John which, which of the two of you are. The, yeah, I do like these. And I, in fact, I, I was going back through some old notebooks and found this in one of them and am reviving it. Um, but actually on the next page, I'm going to, you're going to have to indulge me. I found this, which is a note from a conversation I had with my son. Um, and because this person has been in the news recently, sort of, um, because he plays Donald Trump, I thought it was amusing. So we were watching, um, uh, Thomas the Tank Engine and Alec Baldwin was the narrator. This is old. Yeah, that, that, well, it's an old notebook. My son asked, did you hear him say Alid Baldwin? And I said, no, it's Alec Baldwin. And my son asked, is he good or no? And I said, he's a fine narrator. And, and my son said, will he eat someone and chew their bones? Possibly. <laughs> I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, I wouldn't like him if he did that. So, so that's, Bryce. that's um, yeah. So that's some random stuff that's in my notebook. Anyway, this is... Uh, There's a new book about how cannibalism is really like a totally basic human practice. And you are so excited because it just confirmed your belief about cannibalism. One of those things every, that you're eager to try. If only eager to try. they would bring it back. Every once in a while, I, I try and bait David into a cannibalism conversation. It's so easy. He loves and I have that. To get, I have to get more and more clever in the ways I do it. All right, can you so get I to thought, your actual chatter now? Con- confecting. Well, I gnaw on this. Yeah, over here. Confecting that amusing Alec Baldwin story was really a uh, a stratagem. Anyway, the, the it's um so there are people who are um in the ask culture, and these are people who grow up believing they can ask for anything, a favor, a pay raise, fully realizing the answer may be no. Then there are people who are in the, from the guest culture who um avoid putting their their requests into words because they're pretty sure the answer will be no. So are you an ask or a guess person? Since I spend literally 90% of my time trying to raise money for my startup, I'm definitely in the ask. So did you have to push to get yourself there? Not really. Not really. No. No. Also, I host a podcast where I ask a lot. So we're reporters. We ask. I know it's different. I know it's different. That's totally different. What are you, Emily? 
I'm a guesser. I thought that this was going to be a different setup. I thought you were asking whether you pretend to understand things and know things and assume that the answer or whether you ask with really like, oh, I'm not sure. And I always worry that I don't ask enough. But in this construct where it's about um, asking for things, I get very nervous about asking for things and don't. I, I want people to offer me things. I don't right. want to have to ask. It doesn't work very well, actually. What are you, John? Uh, I'm a total guesser. Yeah. I used to work for you. You know that. <laughs> right. David took I advantage never, of our guesser. You were much more of an asker. You, you were an ask, much more of an asker. Really? Than I used In to what be. sense? Like that I pipe up and. Yeah. I well, mean, let, he used can to we survey the audience? You all the time. I am it was sure. Can we survey the audience to see whether sure. people feel well, they are it, askers or guessers? So, yeah. But then uh, the second thing is is there, A, is this, a, do you find this a useful sorting technique for people? Uh, or no. is there a better one? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, almost any almost anything seems better. Yeah, <laughs> but, and yet you found it good enough to survey the audience well, on this topic. I'm just trying to, to gin up you. interest in your rapidly dying <laughs> chatter. No, I'm no. I, I'm curious you, like, if people uh, wait, people's self conception. Oh, but just by like, I mean, you got to clap. So here's the question: Who here thinks David is a dick? <laughs> no, that's so mean. I don't like that at all. I object. Wow, I've goaded Just. you. I've goaded you deeply. <laughs> this is so satisfying. It takes a lot to make so John be not nice. Remember, this is a podcast that goes out to hundreds of thousands of people. That's now. why he did it. Not just the nice people in this but room. But I think you should ask the audience. Ask the audience. Yeah. Okay, how many people feel that they are part of an ask culture? And, and how many people are in the guesser part of the culture? Oh, interesting. I guess... Not that many fundraisers, people raising money here. I hope you'll indulge me. My, my cocktail chat is going to be slightly longer than usual because uh, for reasons that will become clear. Um, so f for some reason, I just can't imagine why. I've been thinking about what happens when rich white Americans get entranced by Nazi-style ideas. <laughs> and I was reminded of a story that I spent a ton of time on, um, and also because of Today, today happens to be the anniversary of one of the really strangest episodes in Southern California history, uh, one you probably don't know about. So on this day in 1980, the Los Angeles Times reported on the Nobel Prize sperm bank. A reporter uh, named Edwin Chan at the LA Times broke news that a Southern California gazillionaire named Robert Graham, who had made $300 million back when that was a lot of money, by inventing shatterproof plastic eyeglasses, had set up in the backyard of his California, San Diego estate, he'd set up a sperm bank that only stocked the semen of Nobel Prize winners and was only distributed to women who belonged to Mensa. <laughs> and what had happened is that this reporter had heard rumors that this bank existed. He had contacted Graham, who told him, that he was trying to prevent the United States from being overcome by what he called retrograde humans. <laughs> and so he was breeding a cadre of select uh, genius children. He showed uh, the reporter the sperm, which he was keeping in this, in this tank in his estate. And Chen was like, yeah, but how do I know that's from a Nobel Prize winner? It just looks like any other frozen thing. So he, so Chen then called around to every Nobel Prize winner he could find in California and asked them, hey, were you a donor to the sperm bank? And they all said, no, that's, you know, I was asked. It's ridiculous. That's, it's a crazy idea. And then he finally reached this guy named William Shockley, who 
William Shockley, some of you are hissing and booing, rightly so. So William Shockley is an amazing person. He deserves his own his own biopic, his own series. His on own Netflix. book. His own Wait. book. Uh, and he had won the Nobel Prize for inventing the transistor, which is probably the truly the greatest invention of the 20th century. Um, and then he'd come out and he had brought so the reason Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley is because of William Shockley. He set up a company called Shockley Semiconductor in Silicon Valley in the mid 50s, uh, brought out some of the greatest uh, minds in America to come work for him. And he turned out to be an absolute monster. And so all the people who he brought out to work for him quit and they went off and formed another company called Fairchild Semiconductor. And Fairchild Semiconductor is responsible that the eight people who worked for Shockley are responsible for something like 10% of the US GDP comes out of companies that these, these eight people went on to found. So Eugene Kleiner of Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital company and Robert Noyce, um, Gordon Moore, Moore's Law was one of those eight people. Shockley, then his company fell apart. He then disgraced himself in the, over the next 10 years during the 60s by becoming obsessed with race and IQ. And he went around the country talking about how America needed to sterilize people with low IQs, particularly African-Americans. And he would go and speak on college campuses in the late 60s, spouting this idea, which you can imagine was pretty popular. Uh, and he went from over the course of 10 years from being really one of America's national heroes, somebody who was called to testify before Congress, who was on the cover of Life magazine as a hero of American science to being a total villain. And so Shockley, when he's called by the L.A. Times reporter, says, yes, of course, I'm a donor. I think this is a great project. And the story runs in the L.A. Times. It says that Shockley, this this national villain, is is one of the donors. And the thing becomes a disgrace immediately. The sperm bank, Nobel Prize sperm bank, is is literally every single newspaper in America editorializes against the Nobel Prize sperm bank. There's an incredible Saturday Night Live skit called Dr. Shockley's House of Sperm, which has where Rodney Dangerfield plays a sperm donor. And all the people coming in to get sperm keep demanding the Rodney Dangerfield sperm. And he just is like in the back and he just can't keep up. Um, it's like Lucy with the chocolates. Yeah, it's Lucy. It's yes, it's Lucy with the chocolates with a little twist. Um, and and so the sperm bank, which had which had you know this Robert Graham had intended to be this grand vision, went underground. It continued to operate. There's a whole. I ended up writing a whole book about it um, and what became of it and what became of the more than 200 children who were born from it. But it was a it was a time. Uh, it was a great moment of where where someone sort of. Uh, Hitlerian, um, master race, uh, white supremacist ideas were quashed by an American public. So may it happen once more. And is that is that the same Ed Chen who went to cover the White House for the LA yeah, Times? Yeah, Edwin Chen who went he, to cover the White House. I didn't realize that was I. Yeah, yeah. Ed Chen. He yeah. said he said that. So he wrote the story in the LA Times. He said he you know he covered impeachment. He covered all this stuff in the White House. He said not even by a factor of. 10 has any story come close to the furor that that story created. He said it was by far the most kind of the biggest story he ever did because people, it was like such a crazy weird thing. Nobel Prize Sperm Bank. Mensa. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producers, Jocelyn Frank, Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Faye Smith and Kirsten Holtz put together this live show at the Ace Theater. Thank you. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. 
Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating. It really helps us. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Goodbye, Los Angeles. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.